Welcome to this week's lecture, and uh, it is called When Abraham Did the Moonwalk. So, let's start with, as always, a modern-day practical issue, because ultimately, that's what the Torah is really all about. It's not about history as studying history, but rather as studying timeless lessons for us today in wherever we are living. So the moonwalk is a dance move in which the dancer glides backwards, but his slash her body actions suggest forward motion. Formerly known as the backslide, the moonwalk is a popping move. It became popular around the world following Michael Jackson's moonwalk during his performance, which was broadcast on May 16, 1983. However, there are many earlier recorded instances of the moonwalk. Similar steps are reported as far back as 1932, used by Cab Calloway. Nevertheless, the moonwalk as we know it today was created by dancer and singer Jeffrey Daniel, a member of the group Shalamar, which, after he taught it to Michael Jackson, became known as the Moonwalk. Well, that's enough about its history. What I would like to focus on is its opening description of the Moonwalk. A dance move in which the dancer glides backwards, but his or her body actions suggest forward motion. In essence, so much of life's traveling seems to be just like that, in which we simultaneously need to be moving in two opposite directions, spiritual and physical, ascent and descent, practical and meaningful. And I can go on with the antithetical motions we must simultaneously be moving in. In this lecture, we are going to explore the spiritual source of the moonwalk of life and the moves it takes to dance it well. This lecture is based primarily on a mimer, a mystical teaching the Rebbe delivered on this Shabbat in 1977, exploring God's commandment to Abraham, Lech Lecha, go forth from your land and from your birthplace and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. Okay, some introductions. The primary reason uh, for having to be moving simultaneously in two opposite directions is because we are made up from two parts, each and every one of us, of which each is innately moving in opposite directions. We are each made of a soul, referred to as human, and of a body, referred to as animal. The human soul is where the spirituality of the person is. It is the godly soul, while the animal body is where our physicality is and its life force is our animalistic soul. King Solomon states in Ecclesiastics, The spirit of the children of men is that which ascends on high, and the spirit of the beast is that which descends below to the earth. Now, Kabbalah and Hasidus interpret King Solomon's verse to be talking about not the animal kingdom and the human race, 
but rather to be talking of the two parts of the human being, body, soul, and godly soul, animalistic soul. The journey of tikkun, tikkun means correction, is to have the godly soul travel downwards, bringing us its full revelation into our world, and to have our animalistic soul travel upwards to refine itself into becoming a perfect, transparent recipient and vessel to the light of the godly soul. The first time we find this moonwork, moonwalk, of simultaneous, uh, some simultaneous opposite direction between the up and the down is at Mount Sinai. And God, as God gave us the Torah, just before God gave us the Torah, there's a verse in Exodus chapter 19, verse 20, and it says, God descended upon Mount Sinai to the peak of the mountain, and the Lord summoned Moses to the peak of the mountain, and Moses ascended. So in order for the Torah to be given to us, there had to be the moonwalk in which God was descending and Moses was ascending. With this moonwalk began the fulfillment of the purpose of creation, to draw godliness down to, downward into revelation within the physical world and to elevate the physical physicality of the world into refinement, openness, and transparency to God and to God's will. And this moonwalk all begins with the human, the microscopic universe between the divinity of his soul and the coarseness of his body. With this, we can go into the deeper dichotomous mystical interpretations of each station of the God-commanded journey. From your land, from your birthplace, and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And now, let us begin the lecture. As always, I start off with giving you a list of the mystical concepts we're going to talk about, then we explain each one of them, and then we come back full circle to the modern day issue. How does this help us in our practical modern life? So the list is number one, the journey of the soul. Number two, the journey of the body. Number three, simultaneously. And lastly, number four, going from the Tishrei Jewish calendar month of holidays into Cheshvan, the Jewish calendar month of working okay and now let the amazement of Hasidus begin so first the journey of the soul the journey of the soul begins with and God said to Avram that's how the verse starts at first Abraham's name was Avram and only after he did his journey God gave the extra letter hey to Avram making his name Avraham Thus, Hasidus starts with explaining the name Avram. What is hidden within the name Avram as it is within the godly soul? So, when making man, God said, and I quote to you the verse in Genesis, verse 1, 26, let us make in our image after our likeness. And so it was. In the next verse, it says, number verse number 27 in chapter 1 of Genesis, and God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Okay, what does that mean? 
Does God have an image? This is explained in the uh, book of Tanya in the beginning of chapter 3 to mean that godly, that the godly soul in the human, right? I'm sorry. The godly soul of the human consists of 10 faculties, I'm quoting to you from the book of Tanya, consists of 10 faculties corresponding to the supernal 10 spherot, which means divine manifestations, from which they have descended, which are subdivided into two, namely the three mothers and the seven multiples. To it, and here I'm going to list you the, the um, 10 of the 10 emanations, Chachma, which is wisdom, Bina, which is understanding, Dat, which is knowledge, and the seven days of creations, as the Zohar calls it, Chesed, which is kindness, Gvura, which is power, Tferet, which is beauty, those are the three primary of the seven, and, and so on. So too, with the human soul, I'm still quoting to you the words of Tanya, and it's ten faculties that are divided into two general categories, intellect, and emotional attributes. The category of intellect includes wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, while the emotional attributes are love of God, dread and awe of Him, glorification of Him, and so forth. So what we see here is that, well, we're going to talk about the ten spherot in a, in a little bit, but what we do see here is that the way God created the transformer from the infinite to the finite, which is through the ten emanations, specific finite formed and defined emanations, so too God has placed within our soul to reflect that the ten faculties of the human psyche, the three intellects and the primary seven emotions. Okay, thus, most often, when we speak of the godly soul, we speak of wisdom being the highest, the first of the ten faculties reflecting the first of the ten emanations. And being that we are speaking of the godly soul, thus we are speaking of the highest level of its divinity. However, when we speak of wisdom, we speak of revelation. Being that we are speaking of a wisdom that we can perceive and digest. In reality, this alone, that we are speaking of revelation, points out that it is the expressiveness of the soul and not the essence of the soul. With this, we can now decipher the deeper meaning of the word Avram, when it is referring to the godly soul. The name Avram is mystically divided into two words, Avram, exalted father. Now, father in Kabbalah is the name for wisdom, mother for understanding. However, what we are talking about here is exalted, Avram, exalted father. Now, exalted means that it is beyond revelation, perception, and digestion. And thus, Avram is defined as and I quote you a, a category in Kabbalah, intellect that disappears is hidden from any idea, thought, revelation. Seichel hanelam mikol rayon. Okay, let's understand this. To understand this, I want to begin with explaining that in Kabbalah and Hasidus, the deeper dimensions of the soul's faculties of intellect and emotions 
are not in how the soul receives and reacts to outside knowledge and stimuli, but rather it is all about how the soul reveals its core essence of being, truly a piece of God above. So let me explain what I just said. So normally we refer to our intellects as being able to receive and learn from the world around us, from teachers outside of us, from books and works outside of us. How do we digest it? How do we internalize it so that we may grow through the three intellects? How do we react and respond to the stimuli around us? Is through our seven emotions. Thus it seems to be that the soul is the recipient and through its faculties it is receiving from the outside. Not so in the teachings of Kabbalah where primarily the soul as a piece of God has everything within and the faculties are actually not as to receive but rather as to reveal that which lies within. Through the intellects the essence piece of the soul is expressing and revealing its infinite knowledge that it has from within. And through its emotions, it's revealing its relationships with self, its relationship with God, and its relationship with God's creation. Thus, we have to look at these faculties as the revelation of self. Now that we understand that, let's go further. Thus, whilst wisdom is the lower stage in which we speak of a divinity of the soul that can express itself in a finite form of intellect, nevertheless, the level of intellect that disappears from any idea, Seichel Hanelem Mikol Ryan, speaks of a level of divinity of the soul that is above and beyond revealing itself to any finite perceivable and digestible faculty of intellect, including the most exalted of them, wisdom. So thus, while wisdom is the first of the faculties far higher, deeper into within the essence of the soul, lies the Avram, the exalted father, the intellect that is hidden from any idea and thought. Seichel Hanelem Mikol Ryan, the Avram. I need to also add on that we are speaking just of the, we are not speaking, I'm sorry, we are not speaking just of the individual not being able to explain this intellectual concept to another, but rather we're speaking of the individual himself as he cannot perceive the truism that he is experiencing in the moment. So sometimes you'll have, oh, uh, you know what, I, I just can't explain this to you. Yeah, you'll, you'll always have that statement, you know, oh, when you grow up or, or something like that, I can't explain this to you. That's not what we're talking about here. Remember, we're not talking about the faculties of the soul as they are interacting, teaching, or learning from others. Rather, we are talking about the way the soul reveals itself within ourselves. Thus, when we talk about a level, that essence level of the soul, which cannot reveal itself, it is hidden, we are talking about how I, myself, you, yourself, cannot 
really explain and intellectually grasp and digest the truism which your soul is sharing with you. Okay, to explain this, I will take a personal liberty of connecting this to a Talmudic concept, because what does that mean? I, I have a truism that's coming from within, but I can't even wrap my head around my own truism, which is coming from within my soul, which rests within the frontal cortex of my mind. What, what is going on here? So I'm going to share with you that the Talmud speaks of a sage called Rav. That was his name, Rav, in which Rav states a law concerning the boundary description in a contract of a piece of land being sold. That's what that specific tractic in the Talmud and that specific teaching is about. It's called Baba Basra and it deals a lot with the laws of real estate. And the story goes on to say that he gives a certain, he states a law that if the contract is written as such and such, this is how we interpret the contract. The Talmud then states a question asked of Rav by two sages. They questioned his, his law and thus they were saying that, you know, they disagree with the way he describes the law, he rules the law on this contract. Now, the Talmud states in response to these two that asked a question of Rav, Rav was silent. Okay, now here come along the commentaries and the codifiers and argue over what Rav's silence means. Did Rav retract the law in his being silent or did he not retract the law? Now, this is a huge point, not just in understanding the Talmud as the commentaries are working on it, but it also makes a huge point of difference to the codifiers of Jewish law. Because the rule is that the law follows the opinion of Rav in these instances. And thus, they need to understand if Rav's being silent means he retracts the law, okay, then we don't follow this ruling. And if it means that he did not retract the law, he just remained silent to their question, then the rule, the final rule in the code of Jewish law is as Rav's verdict. And believe it or not, the codifiers actually argue over this in how they interpret what it means that he was silent and therefore in what the actual law concerning such a contract is. Now, Kabbalah and Hasidus view the notion of Rav kept silent but did not retract himself. Let's follow that opinion for a moment. Uh, they, they, there's an interpretation that if he didn't retract his law, then why did he remain silent? That means that he didn't agree with their questions. So why the silence? So the, the interpretations that the, the Talmudic scholars give are such as, number one, that he ignored their question, he had an answer but what but didn't share it with them for whatever reason. Another um, approach, Talmudic approach, is that he didn't have an answer, but being that this wasn't a law that he himself decided, it was one that he received as a tradition from his teachers. Therefore, regardless of if he had an answer or didn't have an answer, whether he understood it or he didn't understand it, he accepted the verdict of his teachers. And thus, even though he remained silent, he didn't retract it. That's the Talmudic commentary on the opinion of Rav remained silent, but he did not retract his law. Now let's see how Kabbalah explains it. 
Mystically, we take a whole different approach to what was going on for Rav. And maybe we can understand what the mystics are explaining as that Rav was experiencing the truism of his verdict on a divine level of the soul, which is the intellect that disappears, is hidden from any idea, thought, and revelation. The, the certainty of the truism that he was experiencing from the essence of his soul could not at that moment express itself into a logical conversation and understanding of what that truism was. But because he was experiencing that truism from the highest level of his soul, he didn't retract. Okay, thus it is the essence point of the godly soul that God speaks to in the beginning of our Torah portion when God says, when the Torah says, and God said to Avraham, Avram, go forth. And it is from this essence point of the godly soul that the journey of going forth begins, meaning that the journey of descent in which the essence of the soul reveals itself into the faculties of the soul until it reveals itself into the practical physical thoughts speech and action which is the tenth faculty of kingship as it is called to the land that i will show you so let's go ahead now and briefly explain the detailed itinerary of the journey that god is commanding avraham to travel avram to travel now let's break it into piece by piece from your land. The Hebrew word for land is Eretz, which represents the faculty of will. Why? Being that our sages teach, and this is a quote from our sages, why is it called Eretz? Because in Genesis, in the process of creation, it ran. The word in Hebrew for running is Rutz. It ran to fulfill the command of God, let the earth give forth, so forth and so on. This journey is to have the essence of our of our soul descending and shining within our power of will so the fact that the land ran shows that it was its will the power of will it wasn't just doing it it was running to do it so what this means to us in understanding the journey of the soul from avram all the way to the land that i will show you that this level of from your land means to take it from the Avram the, into the faculty, the power of will. Now, the next stop, and from your birthday and um, birthplace and from your father's house. Okay, as we quoted earlier from the Tanya, that the intellectual faculties of the soul are the parents to the emotion faculties of the soul. Why? For it is through the intellectual understanding of the kindness of God that we give birth to the emotion of loving God. And it is through the intellectual understanding of the vast omnipotence and greatness of God that we give birth to the emotion of awe of God. Thus, our emotions are, big, are, are built upon our understanding, our intellectual understanding of God. We're talking about the godly soul, so the emotions are towards God. This journey, this part of the journey is to have the essence of soul 
to now descend and to and to shine into our intellectual paradigm and into our emotional experiences. Let's go to the last stop, to the land that I will show you. As mentioned earlier, this refers to the 10th faculty of the soul, the faculty of expression, which through the garments, that's what it's called in Kabbalah, the garments of the soul, which are thought, speech, and action, the soul expresses itself. That is the 10th faculty, and that is what we call to the land that I will show you. This journey is to have, this, this leg of the journey, is to have the essence of our soul descend, shine, and illuminate within our every thought, speech, and action. And this is the emphasis of that I will show you, as this land of thought, speech, and action is the soul entering into total revelation, show you, in expressing itself out of self into the world, thought, speech, and action. Now, and through this journey of descent into revelation and into the human physical life of dealing with the body's needs and the struggles of earning a living, and yet nevertheless making sure to set aside time for entering into the ark of prayer and the ark of Torah study. Through this, the raging waters of the rat race lifts the ark and lifts the person, body and soul, within the ark to unprecedented heights. Thus, through the soul's journey of descent from the hidden essence to the expressive revelation of living in a physical body and world, the soul reaches unprecedented heights. And thus the verse states, Lech Lecha, go to you. And Rashi explains what does it mean go to you? It means for your sake. So what, there's the literal, the, the literal translation, go to you, to your essence core. And then there's the Rashi's interpretation, which means for your sake. Meaning that the descent is for the soul's sake, as it will ultimately reach through this journey into the full interior of its essence to you. Lech Lecha. Okay, that's the journey of the soul. That's the one direction, the descent. Now let's talk about the journey, this very same verse with this very same itinerary as it applies to the body, the journey of the body, the ascent. Okay, another way that Exodus explains the journey of Lech Lecha, go forth from your land and from your birthplace and from your father's house to the land that I will show you, is not as the descent and the revelation from above to below, but rather as an ascent of refinement from below to above. And the foundation to this journey is the practical implication of the verse. Let's talk about it not just on the microscopic, metaphorical, human definition, but what is the verse actually saying at that time? It's telling Avram to go ahead and to leave the place and environment of his idol-worshipping father, whose name was Terach, and to travel to the land, right? God was telling Israel to go to the land, which would become the land of Israel, which was then called the land of Canaan. And this land, what is this land all about? So the verse in Deuteronomy states, a land that Lord your God looks after. The eyes of Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year, to the end of the year. Okay, so now, as explained earlier, 
This is the journey of the animal part of every human, the body and its life force, the animalistic soul. Thus, this will be a journey from our innate self-centeredness, egocentric paradigm to a theocentric, selfless paradigm of life. To explain this, the innate core drive of every physical being is survival. And thus, ultimately, it's every action and thought is self-centered, that it must survive. Thus, the lion kills the gazelle not of malicious intent, but of the fight for survival. And thus, you'll see that after the kill, once the lion is calm and saturated, the gazelles are right there. They're not running away because it's all about a self-centeredness of survival. Now, let's go ahead and here too define the itinerary of the journey step by step. From your land, as we explained in the previous journey, land refers to the power of will. Only that here we are speaking of our egocentric power of will. Remember, we're talking about the self-centered, egocentric paradigm of the animalistic soul, the body. And what is that power of will? It defines itself as, I want what I want, and I want it now, which is focused solely on physical sensory pleasure and comfort. It's all about this concept of the what we call FOMO and YOLO. Now, I learned this from my kids. FOMO means fear of missing out. YOLO means you only live once. This journey is to be able to break free of the stronghold of our egocentric power of will and its domination over our decisions and to begin to poke holes into this power of will allowing for us to see in our power of will beyond just ourselves okay and from your birthplace and from your father's house what does that mean in this journey our egocentric intellectual paradigm and emotions are always perceiving and reacting with what is in it for me and our interpretation our interpreting everything from a view of predator and prey driven by once again the fomo and the yolo this journey is to break through and ascend from our self-centered intellectual paradigm and emotional experiences in which we learn to finally to think and feel the other and of god and what is the last stop of this journey? To the land that I will show you. As mentioned earlier, this refers to the 10th emanation of kingship. Now, in order to understand this, how does this play itself out, the 10th emanation of kingship in the journey of the body from below to above, it is necessary to understand a teaching concerning the 10 emanations. Okay, the ten emanations exist in Atsilut, world of divinity and unity. The primary purpose of the ten emanations is to be a transformer system, to transform the incoming infinite formless light into finite defined lights. The first nine emanations are primarily working on creating finite and formed spirituality and remains within the world of divinity and unity. The 10th emanation of kingship has the job of transforming the light of Atsilut 
and to contract and conceal it to a point where it can separate and descend into the lower worlds of separation until it becomes the very life force of the physical. The wording in the teaching of Kabbalah is kingship of Atzilut descends to become the supernal crown of Bria, lower worlds of separation. Okay, what does all this mean practically? The point here is that the tenth emanation is the spiritual source of our physical body and its animalistic soul. Thus, the ultimate ascent of the egocentric animalistic soul is to ascend and enter into the paradigm of its spiritual source in the world of divinity and unity. This is the land that I will show you. And here, the words I will show you refers to the divinity revelation of the world of Atzilut. So you're going from the absolute, this journey is going from the absolute egocentric, I want what's in it for me, reaching up all the way into the spiritual source of the physical body and the animalistic soul, where it is part and parcel of God is everything and everything is God. Okay, so now that we understand the moonwalk of this these two journeys, which is the descent and revelation of the soul. At the same time, the revelation, elevation, I'm sorry, I shouldn't use the word revelation, the refinement and the elevation of the body soul, body to become a vessel, a transvessel, a transparent vessel to the revelation of the soul. Now, seemingly, this is two as we mentioned, two opposite antithetical journeys. The moonwalk is to bring them both happening simultaneously. So let's go to the next Kabbalistic concept of how does this work simultaneously. Okay, the moonwalk in the sense that we travel both of these journeys which are moving in opposite directions simultaneously. Being that both journeys are interpretations of the very same commandment to journey, the Lech Lecha, they are, they are one and the same commandment to be traveled simultaneously. Okay, we cannot divide our life in a fashion where sometimes we are only shining spirituality and other times we are just working on physical self-refinement. Rather, every day, every experience and every action needs to be moonwalking in which we are simultaneously having our spirituality shining downward and our physicality ascending upward. In other words, our, our every spiritual moment needs to manifest itself in a physical refinement of goodness, kindness, and selflessness, and our, our every physical moment of eating, earning a living, etc., needs to be permeated with spirituality, simply speaking, spiritual meaning and purpose. Okay, this has to be happening simultaneously. And now let's talk about how the year is set up, the Jewish calendar year. 
With this, we can appreciate the process of starting our year with an abundance of spiritual holidays, each having their own physical commandments of refinement as well, sounding the shofar, fasting on your kipper, eating in the sukkah, using the lul of an esrik, etc. And then going into a month of no holidays, fully submerged into physical work to earn money, etc. Now, in order to imbue us with the power to dance this moonwalk, walk, we first start with the epic high of Rosh Hashanah and reaching into the essence of our soul and simply cry out in to totally pure, illogical, transcending, chauffeur-sounding. It isn't the art of articulation of prayer, but rather a cry from that very point of Avram within our soul. And from there we travel the journey of Revelation until the final holiday of the previous Jewish calendar month of Simchat Torah. And what is Simchat Torah all about? It's all about the dancing of our feet, expressing physically our love for and how much we cherish the Torah. Right after this, we are thrown into the flood of the raging waters of earning a living. No wonder that the first Torah portion we read after the month of the holidays is a story of Noah and the flood. With trying to catch up for all the days we couldn't work in the previous holiday month, our desk is now piled high. And now, fighting not to have our spirituality drowned, we stop, we stop from the, the bottom up. We start, I'm sorry, from the bottom up, from the very heel of our feet that danced on Simchat Torah. What does this mean? That means that as we're thrown into the piled up work that we couldn't do last month, it's laying on our desk, it's all over the home, we have so much work to do, that we're just drowning in this physicality. And then we have to start from the feet, from the bottom up. What this means is that feet in Kabbalah represent the farthest distance from the mind and the heart. And thus, we are forcing ourselves to have dry obedience in starting our day with tefillin, putting on tefillin for the men and prayers for both men and women and hanging on to our daily or weekly set times for Torah study, even though we're so inundated in catching up with all the work. And from there we ascend into the having emotionally charged and intellectually filled Jewish moments in everything we do. And this becomes the moonwalk we dance for God every day of our life. Okay, in closing. In closing, I want to share with you the lyrics to a song by the Chipettes called Hot and Cold. I'm going to read to you the lyrics, one part of the song. You change your mind like a girl changes clothes. Yeah, you always dress like a chick I would know, and you always think, always speak, Cryptically, yeah, I should know that you're not good for me. Yeah, hey, yeah, yeah. Cause you're hot, then you're cold. You're yes, then you're no. You're in, then you're out. You're up and you're down. You're wrong when it's right. It's black and it's white. Wow. Not only is this so unbearably hard for anyone, spouse, children, or anyone living with you, working, or having a friendship with such an individual. But most of all, it is unbearably hard for the individual alone, 
him or herself. Such a person is a captain of a ship forcing his crew to take the ship into a storm, get out of the storm, get into the storm, out of the storm, again and again. The ship is the person's life and gestalt. The crew is his mind, heart, body, soul, intellect, emotions and behaviors. And living such a dual life leaves the ship, the crew and the journey battered and exhausted all the time. The individual is left confused and puzzled at, I put my head in boiling hot water and my feet in freezing water, so why am, not, why am I not experiencing an all-around comfort of being lukewarm? The point here is that life is meant to be danced as a moonwalk, the spiritual, the physical, the ascent, the descent, rather than as a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Thank you.